I know Romans 4. You ready? Get your Bibles open. In Romans 3 and 4, Paul is putting some questions into the mouth of the metaphorical judge that he introduces in Romans 2. Now, I think he's heard these questions and these arguments in synagogues and in house churches across the empire. The Jews, or the weak in, in Romans, did not object to the notion that the Gentiles, the strong, were sinners. And they didn't, you know, they didn't um, object to the theoretical notion that they themselves were sinners. But they could not and would not accept that they were sinners before God on an equal basis with the Gentiles. No, 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 no. We're Jews. We have an advantage. And so we get three big questions in Romans 3 and 4, which are actually variations of the same theme. In 3.1, he asks, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Any advantage to being Jewish? Well, Paul says, yes, there is an advantage, but it's not exactly what you think it is. What, you, you know, you think it's going to get you to, to, you know, you're better off because you were given, you know, certain privileges, but they are better off because they were given the Torah, but they're not better off because it raised the level of responsibility of whom much is given, much is required. Question number two is in chapter three, verse 27. Where then is boasting? I mean, you know, this is a culturally accepted form of boasting, like a, a nice resume. All right, and they did that back in the Roman world. And, and it was a boasting in their accomplishments to get ahead in the world. So the weak are reflecting Roman culture by boasting in their choice. God chose them as a people, so that's a source of boasting. But Paul says, Gentiles, you know, through faith, they, they can share in this election too. It's not as much of an advantage as you think it is. Because Gentiles can live out by the, the Torah of faith and be equal. And then chapter 4, verse 1, what shall we say then, or what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? Okay, these are all variations of the same theme. And they move forward the argument Paul is making, but they're sort of the same question. The judge of Romans 2 believes that the weak alone are faithful to Israel's story. They've been chosen. They're the privileged ones. And so their messianic hope and their faith with the Torah observance, you know, these, these new Gentile followers of God, they need to be complete. They, you know, they really need to do the Jewish stuff if they're going to really be believers, if they're going to complete their conversion. And so from different angles, Paul presses home the same big points in Romans 3 and 4. There's one God, uh, the works of the Torah, they never really justified anybody, he says. Jesus, he's faithful. Justification, being declared righteous, comes by faith. And so basically, Jews and Gentiles, they're justified in the same way. Why is he talking about all of this? Because there's great tension in the church. The weak, the Jews, are trying to lord over the strong, the Gentiles. And so Paul's goal is reconciliation. His goal is to develop peace in the church tolerance, energized by love. This isn't theology just for the sake of theology. It is a lived theology with some theological underpinnings, and that's what he's doing. 
And so we come to Abraham in this last question in chapter 4, verse 1. And if you're going to pick an Old Testament figure that really ought to hit it home with the Jews, it's Abraham. He's your guy. He's going to even mention David here pretty soon, you know, the two biggies. So let's walk through Romans 4, where I think Paul points out four things. Four, he makes four points about the, the faith of Abraham as our model. And if we can follow that, he'll bring peace to the church. So number one point is this. Abraham was saved by faith and not by works. Romans 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? He's talking to the Jews, obviously. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works... Wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. Credited is a bookkeeping, accounting term. You know, you take your check to the bank and you put it in there and they'll credit your account, whatever that deposit amount is. We understand that. And so we read on verse 5. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David, he says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. How was Abraham saved, he says. He asks. He believed God. His trust, his confidence in the promise of God was credited to his account in heaven. He was given righteousness. Why? Because he was a good man? No. Because he was bold? No. Because he had lots of integrity? No. Because he was wise? No. Because he was morally strong? Uh, no. Because he was righteous? No. Abraham was justified for one reason and one reason only. He believed God. When he was old and he was childless, there was no human reason to believe that he could have a child. And when everything argued against him, Abraham believed God. And that faith was credited to his account. And God de declares him righteous apart from anything he did. Abraham was saved by faith, not by works. Number two, he says, Abraham was saved by faith and not by circumcision. Verse 9, is this the blessedness? Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abram's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised in order that the righteousness might be credited to them. And he, then, and he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Oh boy, circumcision, you're excited now. It's a subject we're probably all a little bit uncomfortable with, right? And so no matter what I'm going to say in the next few minutes, you're just going to have to deal with it. 
There's no reason to be embarrassed by it. Whose idea is it? God's? Where is he found? It's found in the Bible. So, you know, deal with that too. But we need to understand the Jewish mindset at this point. It doesn't mean for us what it meant for them. To us, it's a medical procedure. It involves the, the, the removal of a foreskin of a male, usually right after birth. To the Jews, it was a sacred ceremony that marked a point of entrance into a living, vital relationship with God. So take a step back. Why would God do, tell them to do this? Why would he do that? Well, think about it. I think it does three things. First, circumcision is a permanent mark on the body. You cannot put it back after it's been removed. And once it's been done, the act will mark a man forever. So it's a permanent reminder of a sacred relationship to God. Number two, circumcision served as a private reminder to a man. Although few other people would ever see it, he saw it every day he got dressed. No matter where he went as a Jew, no matter how far he traveled from Jerusalem, no matter how deeply he drank at the, at the pagan fountain, he had a private and personal re reminder that he had a relationship with God first and foremost. And third, circumcision continually reminded man of his spiritual obligations. Suppose you're a Jewish male and you're going to commit adultery. You can't do that without being reminded that, you know, I have a relationship with God. And even in that act, that mark would remind him of his sin. And in the most private and personal moments of his life, he would remember multiple times a day whose he was, and to whom he belonged. No wonder they valued circumcision so much. It was God's way of reminding them that they were his people. And so when we understand circumcision in that light, the question makes perfect sense. Must a person be circumcised to be saved? And the weak say, yes. What does Paul say? No. He'd already established that Abraham was saved by faith. And I think his opponents, they kept to kind of grudgingly admit that to be true. But they would argue since Abraham was circumcised, that must prove that circumcision was necessary for salvation. Verse 10 says, we have been saying, Paul says in response to that, that Abraham's faith was credited him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was he credited? Was it after circumcision or before? was not after, but it was before. He's dealing with a biblical chronology here. What happened and in what order? Abraham was saved before his circumcision. The credited of the righteousness to his account happened before he got circumcised. Therefore, circumcision cannot be necessary for salvation because he was righteous before circumcision. Maybe a chart helps. When was Abraham saved? Okay, Genesis 15. He's saved, he's credited to him, if you read the account, as righteousness. He's 85 years old. In Genesis 17, he's circumcised. He's 99 years old. Ouch. <laughs> so Paul's argument is simple. 
he was credited the righteousness of God 14 years before he was circumcised. Therefore, circumcision cannot be necessary for salvation. So what's its point if not to provide salvation? Paul answers that two ways. He says circumcision is a sign. It's a sign that points to something else. If you see a sign on the road, Palm Springs, 50 miles, okay, that sign is not Palm Springs. But it does let you know you're going in the right direction and you'll be there in, you know, an hour or so. Some of you 20 minutes or 15. It doesn't render the sign useless that you're not in Palm Springs yet. Because it is pointing you in the right direction. So circumstance, circumcision is a physical sign given to the Jews to point them to God. A divine reminder that they belonged to him. And they were special recipients of his blessing. So it's a sign, and the second Paul says it's a seal. A seal in, um, describes or authenticates the truth or the reality of something else. Your passport has to have that great seal of, of the United States on it. And that means it's real. You know, the notary public will come and attest to the validity of the signatures on a paper, and they'll put a stamp, a seal. That's what this is. The seal means this is a real thing. It's an outward indication of an inward reality. And that's exactly what circumcision meant to the Jewish people. It's an outward indication of an inward reality. And although a man was circumcised as a child, the act was meant to be a reminder to live your life in relationship to this God. But circumcision had value only if the outward sign was accompanied by the inner surrender of the heart to God. Paul is not arguing against the validity of circumcision, rightly understood. But the Jews had torn the envelope open. They had thrown away the contents, and they kept the meaningless part. And so Paul concludes two things from this, based on the word father. If Abraham was saved before he was circumcised, then who can really call him father? Is it a right only given to the weak, only to the Jews, which is what they thought? Or can the strong call him father as well? To the uncircumcised or to the strong in the, in the context of Romans, in verse 11 it says, so then he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised in order that the righteousness might be credited to them. Can the Gentiles call Abraham father? Of course they can. They have the same faith as Abraham. It's as simple as that. Faith saves, and faith alone saves. And as long as you have the same kind of faith Abraham had, you're his, he is your spiritual father. To the circumcised or to the weak, he says, they can call him father, but they have to have his faith too. Verse 12, he then, and he is then also the father of the circumcised, who are not only, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that, that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. That's a complicated saying, sentence, but what he's saying is the Jews can call him father if they have the same faith. It's, it's still a matter of faith. And the notable fact about Abraham, so far as Paul is concerned, is not his circumcision, it is his faith. And if you need to copy something about Abraham, 
Copy his faith. Then if you want to be circumcised, it's okay. Go ahead, do it. But that's not the crucial fact. Paul, you see, is saying that salvation is not a racial thing. It has nothing to do with who your parents were or where you were born or what kind of marks you have on your body. Those things, they don't matter to God when it comes to salvation or crediting righteousness to our account. Who is the real Jew then? The real Jew is the one who has the faith of Abraham. Verse 16, he is the father of us all. And when did Abraham have faith? Before he was circumcised. Before he was circumcised, was he a Jew or a Gentile? He was a Gentile. That's shocking for the Orthodox weak in Rome. All his life he had thought that Gentiles have to come and become Jews in order to find faith. Now Paul is saying that the Jews must follow in the footsteps of the uncircumcised Abraham. You got to be like him. He's saved by faith. He's not saved by circumcision. Point number three he makes, Abraham was saved by faith and not by keeping the law. Verse 13, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, Paul is, is thinking about the special promise God gave to Abraham. It included what? Land, seed, children, and a blessing. And you got these three promises. He's thinking about that. And that was given to Abraham when? Like 500 years before the law. Don't, don't mix those two things up. God gave his promise, and it had nothing to do with what God promised and told and instructed Moses 500 years later. They're two separate events. There's a promise, and there's a law. Don't confuse the two. The promise came to Abraham not by keeping the law, but through righteousness that comes by faith. And that promise came despite Abraham's faults and his frailties, and he had many. Number four, Abraham is our model for faith. Now he does a deep dive. He wants to analyze this faith of Abraham. If faith is so important, what does it look like? This faith which saved. Let's read the whole text. Verse 18. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening, weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him for righteousness. We're going to analyze his faith, and then we're going to apply it to our lives. What does true faith look like? What does faith credited to righteousness, as righteousness, look like? Number one, faith has to be in the promise of God. What was the promise that Abraham believed? Verse 18 says it was the promise to, that he would be the father of many nations. This had to have seemed incredible to a 75-year-old man, which is his age at that point, with no children. 75 is a little late to be starting a family. Don't ask me. I don't know yet. I'm quite a bit younger than that. But I'll tell you this, at whatever age I am, I don't want to start a family now either. 
The promise was clearly impossible. It was a pipe dream. It was vain. It was wishful thinking, nothing else. But somehow Abraham found it within himself to believe God. Verse 18 says how he did it. He believed against all hope. Against the idea there is no human reasoning that can make this happen. Hoping even when all else was was lost. And that's actually the only way Abraham could have kept on believing for all those years, 75 to 100. He was God-centered. He wasn't man-centered. He had a vertical focus, not a horizontal focus. Because as long as he looked at his circumstances, he could find a lot of reasons why this was just not going to happen. I'm too old. She's too old. Well, nothing like this has ever happened before. We've tried to have a baby for years. It hasn't happened. Our friends think we're nuts. The only thing he had was to do what? Believe the promise of God. That's faith. Second thing, faith is based on the raw word of God and nothing more. It's where, that, where faith takes and meets the acid test. Are you willing to believe God even though your outward circumstances argue against it? Abraham was. Where was he going to find any encouragement? From his friends? <laughs> no. From his wife? She thought it was a cruel joke. Well, surely his dad is going to support him. Uh, Dad's dead. His nephew, Lot? No. Lot's down in Sodom and Gomorrah having a good time when this is all happening. While Abraham is grappling with the promise of God, Lot's down playing around. So where is he going to get encouragement? I don't think he's going to get encouragement from any person, living or dead. He had no one to encourage him. So how did he find the strength to go on? We've been there. We are there. I think of 1 Samuel 30, but David found strength in the Lord his God. That's what Abraham did. When everything argued against it, Abraham found his strength in God. Here's a marvelous principle of the spiritual life. God wants to bring you to the place where our trust will be in God and God alone. And how does he bring us there? By removing all crutches. By removing all human supports sometimes. And from time to time, we find ourselves in a position where nobody but God can help. And in that moment, we tend to panic. Which is unfortunate because when we get to that place, we need to realize that God and God alone can help us out. And we're excellent candidates in that moment for the presence of God, for the miracle of God. Faith has to be based on the raw promise of the word of God and nothing more. Third observation as he analyzes Abraham's faith is that faith remains in the face of impossible circumstances. Here's the heart of the matter. Abraham believed in spite of what it looked like. Verse 19, without weakening in faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. But I loved when he says he faced the fact. You see, in every crisis in your life, you need to face the fact. You cannot run from reality. 
If it's cancer, you face the fact. If it's a divorce, you face the fact. If you lose your job, then you face the fact. You can run and hide, stick your head in the sand, but it will not do you any good. Faith doesn't avoid the facts. It faces them, and it reacts to them based on the word of God. Faith doesn't say, this isn't happening to me. That's not faith, that's fantasy. Faith believes that beyond the crisis, a better day is waiting. Faith believes that there is more than meets the eye. Faith sees things that are invisible to the naked eye. And Abraham faced two unavoidable facts. My body's dead in that regard, and Sarah's body's dead in that regard. And on both sides of the equation, it is impossible. And on a human level, he's too old. Period. End of discussion. Case closed. But he remained believing God in the face of those impossible circumstances. Number four, faith is unwavering. The text says that many ways in our passage. It's against all hope, Abraham and hope believed. Without weakening in faith, he did not waver through unbelief, being fully persuaded that God has the power to do what he had promised. And we might sum up his reaction to this impossible situation in two ways. He didn't look for reasons to doubt God. He praised God for the blessing before it even happened. So many of us, we fail it right there. When a crisis comes home, we're looking for reasons and excuses not to believe God. And that inner pessimism, it comes out in a moment of difficulty. Some of us go right to, ain't God, there ain't no way God's ever going to take care of me. He can't do it. How much better to begin by praising God for his answers before they even come, which is what Abraham did. So you say, well, did Abraham ever doubt? Well, of course he did. Genesis 17 says when he heard the news, he laughed. He fell on the ground. It's like, this is ridiculous. Sarah did the same thing. It seemed like a cruel cosmic joke on two old people to make them look foolish. But Abraham had his doubts. It's natural. Who wouldn't? He was a man. He's not some plastic figure who's always doing the right thing. He had his doubts, but he didn't dwell on them, which is why we're talking about him today. He had his doubts, but doubting isn't sin. It's what you do with your doubts that makes a difference. And you either fight through them or you give in to them. It's that simple. And faith is always a struggle. It's always a battle. It's always a conflict within us. Because if faith were easy to come by, it wouldn't be faith. And the point is, Abraham doubted and he wondered what God was up to. But he never gave up. He clung to God through it all. Fifth observation about his faith, faith acts. A-C-T-S, faith, oh, it's there. Faith acts. Verse 20, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. The climax of the story, he believed God to the point of action. Want me to prove that? 
I think the proof of that is Genesis 17, where before there's anything going on, God says, you know, I want to change your name. I'm going to change it from Abram, which means exalted father. I'm going to change your name to Abraham, which means father of nations. And he let him do it. He hadn't had a kid yet. He's 75, not going to have one for a long time. That in itself is kind of a cruel joke that God calls him father of nations. Ishmael's not born until he's 86. But now his name is Abraham. But note the chronology. He doesn't change his name after Isaac was born, but before Isaac was ever even conceived. He changed his name while his body was still dead and Sarah's womb was still closed. He said, I'm about to become a father of many nations, so that's what I'll call myself. That's faith. If his friends thought he was crazy before, now he is certifiable. His faith moved him to action. Faith isn't 100% certainty. Faith means we see the promise, we understand the problems, and then we decide to act on the promise before we've seen it fulfill. Faith acts. It doesn't wait. It takes that proverbial leap in the dark. And if God's not there, you'll be in a fast ride to the rocks below. If he is there, you'll be okay. But you'll never know until you jump. You'll have to tell Andrew, I used a visual aid today. Can you identify this? It's a bagel. Very good. The humble bagel is one of God's wonderful creations. You make it by, you dip the batter into some boiling water, and then, and then you cook it. You can get these in, in almost any flavor these days. Right? You can get them in onion, garlic, poppy seed, trendy flavors. You can get the cinnamon, the raisins, the whatever, jalapeno, chocolate chip. They are a unique Jewish creation. They actually came out of Poland in the, like the 1600s. They have the first mention of them. And you will find them where? Everywhere in the world. Why? Because there are Jews everywhere in the world. Where do they come from? You'll say, well, the Jews come from Israel, right? Well, that's true. But before that, where did they come from? The same Abraham that we're talking about this morning. 4,000 years ago, God made a promise to a very old man with a very old wife. And he promised to give him a son, and through that son to bring a great nation of people And the first Jewish father was Abraham. The first Jewish mother was Sarah. There are today approximately 15 million Jews in the world. All of them ultimately descended from that one old man and that one old woman. And the bagel is a symbol of the faithfulness of God. Despite the pogroms, despite the Holocaust, the Jews are still everywhere. After all the attempts to destroy them, They're still making bagels for the world. 
which leads me to ask a simple question. Where is God stretching your faith today? Where would it be easier for you to doubt God than to believe him? As you think about those questions, think about Abraham, think about Sarah. God put them in the Bible for at least a couple of reasons so that we will know that God is always faithful to keep his promises so that we will never stop believing even though we have to wait a long time to experience the answers to our prayers. Paul wraps up this story of Abraham's faith by applying it directly to the house churches in Rome and to us. The application of Abraham's faith. What does that faith mean to us? The story of Abraham isn't just for him. It's not simply an ancient account of how God used to work. It's the story written in the Bible for our instruction because the God of Abraham is our God too. And the particular application Paul stresses has to do with the way of salvation. Verse 24, we have the Christian gospel really in its most compact form. He talks about the application is first is our way of salvation. Verse 23, the words, it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Righteousness comes by faith. That's how Abraham found it. That's how we find it. Not by works, not by some religious ceremony, but by simple faith in Jesus Christ, whom God raised from the dead. And when we believe Jesus, God credits our account with the same righteousness. He credited the account of Abraham. And second, we see our foundation of salvation. Not only the way, but the foundation. Paul, Paul adds, I think, some very important words in verse 25. So that you don't think that some general believing is the, is the belief that saves. See, the only faith that saves is the faith that's grounded in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 25, he, Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. You see, our faith rests ultimately on the reality of two events which took place 2,000 years ago. The death of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus from the tomb. The first one pays for our sin. The second guarantees it to be true in our lives. So the question that remains is, do you believe? Do you believe that God is able to keep his promise to give to you eternal life. The Gospels really summarize in three sentences, I deserved hell, Jesus took my hell, so there's nothing left for me but heaven. Because if you're willing to do what Abraham did, believe God, you can have the righteousness credited to your account as well. So are you willing to believe the promise of God? Are you willing to act upon that promise? All that God asks is that you stake your forever on the promise of God and the work of God that he did through Jesus Christ. You don't have to add anything else to it. Nothing more could be added to it. Jesus paid the price for our salvation, so it's time to act. 
It's time to believe. You see, the weak have had the attention of the Apostle Paul from Romans basically 1 through 4. In chapters 5 through 8, he's going to turn his attention a little more to the strong. The weak are to welcome the strong. This is the whole point. Because they are all welcomed by God through Christ by faith. There's the Torah of works which the Jews wanted. But there's this Torah of faith that should bind us all together. That should unite us in peace in the church. And it begins with one thing. We all come there. Do I believe in the promise of God? That he can give to me eternal life because of what his son has done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that at the heart of unity in the church is a common faith that you will keep your promise to give us eternal life as we believe you, as we believe what Jesus Christ has done. When he died and rose again, he paid the penalty for our sin. He covers your anger at us. And as we believe, we are, we are credited to our account the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if that's true and if we are there, then we should have unity in the church no matter what. Because that binds us together in perfect peace and a common faith and direction. And as right now a lot of people are facing challenges in life. Help us to have the faith of Abraham to believe you in spite of how dark it gets and how lonely and afraid we can become that we will build our lives on the promises of God and we will have hope in you. In Jesus' name.